um, we've been doing this, I think it's, we're in week 40-something, uh, over, yeah, it's been, yeah. And in chapter 4, at the end of that chapter, is a story of Jesus in a boat. Do you remember that story? And there's a big storm, and Jesus is, uh, what seems to the disciples, being very irresponsible. He's sitting, or sleeping, in the back of the boat on a cushion while the storm is raging. And they wake him up, and they say, don't you care about us? And Jesus calms the storm. Isn't that a beautiful imagery that, for those of us who live with any kind of storm in our lives, I love, don't you just love that one? And you can see yourself asking that question, don't you care about me, you know, in the midst of all of this? And Jesus has this way of being that, that person in the crowd who can calm the storm. And he brings a coolness to hot situations. He has such personal character and uh, he's so Jesus-y that, yeah, how do I say that? But he takes the drama or he, ter- he turns drama into peace. And I love it when anybody does that. But Jesus is the master at that. But now... If you look at if you heard this story right, who's sleeping in this story? The disciples are sleeping, and who's really, really freaking out? Jesus is. Something has really, really changed. And this is the only place, really, that we see Jesus freaking out. There is something that has happened. He gets a whiff of something. I mean, he's known he's going to die. But it's one thing to know something, and it's another thing to taste it and experience it. And he's, he's within hours now of the nails piercing his hands and feet. And he is, is really is coming upon him. Do you remember also back in chapter 1 of Mark, there was a story following his baptism. He was immediately taken into the desert to be tested. And in that testing or temptation, the devil, Luke tells us that at the end of the testing, the three times he was tested or tempted, that at the end the devil said, that, or the scripture says about the devil that he would return at a more opportune time. Folks, this is the more opportune time right here in this story of the Garden of Gethsemane. And so there's a sense of, of, of the, uh, that, that evil one's presence in this story that is very, very heavy. Well, what I want to do is try to create for us a hunger for this table right here. There's, well, there's a bunch of them around. We're going to have communion today. And if I, if I do this well, and if, if you're open to it, and if the Holy Spirit does his job, which I'm assuming he will, I'm going on that, um, then we will have a hunger for coming to receive what God has prepared for us here. So what I'd like to do is give you an outline, real, real short, uh, under pressure, Jesus is under pressure, we'll see that, and then we'll see why, why is it so intense? Why is this time picked out um, by the gospel writers, not just Mark, but Matthew, Mark, and Luke all talk about this time in the story, uh, and it's, it's a very, very, very meaningful time for Jesus. So, uh, we'll start with reading verse 32. They went to a place called Gethsemane. Gethsemane is, um, I'll, I'll give you a picture here. This is the garden. It's a garden on the east side of Jerusalem. There's a wall 
on the east side, it's a walled city, and then on the other, across that, there's kind of a valley, and on the other side is the Mount of Olives, and then these are olives, it's an olive garden, Gethsemane is kind of in between, and it's an olive garden, and this is a picture uh, from, from modern times where there's, it looks like a garden. We don't know exactly what it looked like when Jesus was there, but we do know that there were, would be olive trees there. And olive trees are very interesting uh, trees, and of course, what do you get from olive trees? olives and olive oil and you may uh, if you're like me you like olives and you like olive oil some of you may not I know that it's one of those things you either have a taste for or you don't but olive oil is produced out of an olive press and I want you to know this because the word Gethsemane in Hebrew means olive press and what you're seeing here is a place where the olives are crushed And out of that crushing comes this beautiful, fragrant oil that we get to use for cooking or dipping bread in or whatever. But it's a reminder, and I I think the the Holy Spirit or the Scripture is telling us that Jesus is going under the olive press, that his blood will, that he will be crushed, and that it won't be olive oil, but it will be his blood that comes out. I know that's a little graphic, but I want you to hear from Isaiah, who says that in Isaiah 53, that his, uh, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punish, our punishment came upon him so that we might have peace. And that's pretty close to what we're going to be reading or focusing in on here as Jesus goes toward the cross. He says that he was deeply distressed and troubled. And then he says to uh, his disciples, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. And he said to them, that would be Peter, James, and John. The others he had left further away. But to Peter, James, and John, he said, um, stay here and keep watch. And then Jesus goes on a little, a little further, deeply distressed and troubled. Luke tells us in his account, and Luke is a doctor, a medical doctor, and he tells us that Jesus, as he uh, was there and maybe on his knees, that he was sweating, and it was like sweats uh, or drops of blood that was coming out of his skin. And we don't know exactly what that means. There is a condition uh, medically that uh, is like that. But there was something very profound that was going on both in Jesus and in his body, it seems, at this time. He's under a great deal of stress. Now, back to the point that Jesus is always Mr. Cool, and I'm going to use that phrase uh, appropriately, that in all of the places we've seen him so far, he keeps his cool, and that he's the one who seems to be in control when others aren't. And people come to him with their needs. He's not the needy one. And we might think back to chapter 1, where the man with leprosy runs up to him and gets on his knees and says, Jesus, can you heal me? And Jesus heals him. Or the man in chapter 2 who is uh, let down through the roof. You remember the roof? They open up the roof and the four friends that bring him to Jesus, they let him down. And they were desperate. They wanted something from Jesus. Jesus is the one who can provide. He can meet our needs. And they had a desperate need that day. And Jesus forgave him and healed him. Or the demoniac in chapter 5 who was um, legioned with demons, literally. And he, um, Jesus touches him, casts them out, and 
and, and uh, there's a whole story there, but the man is made whole. Or the woman who came to Jesus with a hemorrhage uh, situation that she had carried with her for 12 years, and every time she went into public, people would say, pointing at her, unclean, unclean. And, uh, you know, just to think of the shame and everything else that went along with that. And she touches Jesus' robe, and she is instantly healed. Jesus is the one who is the calm in the center of all these storms. And then we remember in chapter 12, just a few weeks ago, when we looked at five different instances where people who were basically the enemies of Jesus and those who are going to have their way with Jesus as the story unfolds here, they want to trap him, they want to catch him, and they want to kill him. And they're trying to do it verbally in chapter 12, and they set up these verbal traps, and each time he avoids the trap, and the people who came to trap him end up trapped. Remember that? The, he outfoxes the foxes, that whole series in Mark chapter 12. So the point is that he has a way of keeping his cool and being the calm in the center of the storm. And boy, do we need that. But now he is the one who is hot with anxiety. Hot with anxiety. Just whatever, I mean, that, that, the, the sweating and the, the blood, sweat, and the tears, however it was mixed together, that is where Jesus is at this point. So my question to you, just to relate this to our world, but I can ask you the question, have you ever had an emotional meltdown? But, you know, if I ask your parents, if they would say, well, yeah, lots of times when he was two or she was two, and, any, and many times since, <laughs> truth be told. And um, I also know this, is that we have these, on a degree of, you know, a range of from one to ten or whatever, we've, we all have them, and we had them this week. I mean, it's just, it's the way life is, and um, they, they relate to things like romance, or work, or health, or school, or things that you've lost sleep over, whatever it might be that relationally, you, got, you know what I'm talking about. We all have this, and we can come to a place like this and, you know, look really well uh, scrubbed, and, you know, spell our names right, and everything else, but... And truth be told, that we're really struggling, and we have to ask the question, is it okay to not be okay? And the answer is? Uh, the big answer, the firm, the, the committed answer is? Yes. It's okay to not be okay. And what better place to come and experience that? And so when you come to the communion table this morning, this is, you know, the, the hunger thing, is that you come with that sense in mind that I'm not okay and I need Jesus. That's, my performance is not good enough. <laughs> Whatever it is, I need Jesus. So um, we know that Jesus experienced this desperation himself. This is from Hebrews 5.7, referring to this very incident that we're looking at today. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, we might add, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. So, uh, Jesus, for all of you who are not okay, Jesus knows what it feels like to be needy and to not be okay. And we're going to explore that more deeply. 
Um, before we do that, though, I want to say this: that there's something unique about this passage. In a lot of the a lot of the stories about Jesus are are really amazing, are they not? I mean, the walking on the water and the healing people and even raising people from the dead. I mean, that's pretty amazing stuff. And and some people have said it is so amazing that it seems like legend stuff because we have legends in other uh, writings in ancient times of people doing amazing things, of heroes doing amazing things. But here you have something that you don't find anywhere else. You have somebody who is a hero being made to look very, very vulnerable, very weak. And it it either says, well, how could I believe in someone so weak? Or it leads you to say, how could I not believe in someone so weak? Because he's like I am. You got the point here? You have to choose on this one. But he is becoming across in this story as very, very vulnerable. Socrates, in the face of death, was very stoic and brave, if you remember that story. And we know that from church history, there were many martyrs that were very, very brave in the face of death. It's interesting that Jesus' followers would be able to to face death in what seems like a better way than he can. There's got to be something more to the story for that to be true, because there's nobody like him. But um, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record this story. They want us to know this about Jesus, that he knows what it's like to really, really struggle with anxiety. Okay, so to our second point, why so deep? And we'll cover this, and then we're going to have communion. Well, the first thing is that he prays an interesting prayer that tells us something. Uh, Going a little further, he fell to the ground and he prayed that if possible, this hour, this hour meaning this pregnant time period that he knows what's coming when the nails will pierce his hands and feet, this hour might pass from him. And he cries out, Abba, Father, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I would want, but what you want. Have you ever had a prayer like that that is kind of two-sided or multi-layered where you pray a prayer and then maybe you catch yourself after you pray that prayer and you say, I wonder if that was really my best prayer (laughs) and there's something deeper that needs to be prayed. Am I the only one here that has experienced this? Because it happens to me a lot where I pray a prayer and I realize, oh, there might be something that's more in line with God's will that he would want me to pray. I think it's pretty common uh, to us. And it, it, it sort of shakes out our, our, our uh, lesser prayers. Well, uh, when I was, before I was a Christian, maybe six months or nine months before I was a Christian, I remember praying a prayer, and I can still see the room I was in, and I prayed it, it was for a specific thing in my life at that time that I really, really wanted, and I prayed for that earnestly, not quite as desperately here as Jesus, but I prayed for it. And you probably have a story like this. And then uh, oddly enough, or ironically, I got the answer to that prayer. But that prayer answer became the most painful experience in my life, to that point at least. And it's what led me to a relationship with Jesus Christ. That's, that's what we mean by there's different layers of prayer. And Jesus is saying, I want this but I want something even more than what I want. Secondly, it might help us in terms of understanding the intensity of this to remember this is not the only garden in the Bible. There are a number of gardens in the Bible, but what's the first garden? 
the Garden of Eden. And in that garden was what the Bible calls us calls the first Adam. The first Adam was the one who represents all of us. And I'll just use Adam, but I mean Adam and Eve. They represent all of us. And there was a tree in the garden. But now Jesus, the Bible says, is the second Adam. And there's a tree, not in the garden, but right near the garden, and it's called the cross. And so he has to deal with a tree in the same way the first Adam had to deal with a tree. This is something that we would want to think about. There's a parallel here between these two gardens, between these two Adams. And the first Adam, the first man, Adam means man, that's the definition in Hebrew. The first man didn't struggle the way the second man struggles. The first Adam was wanting something more than he had. Now remember what he had. He had a perfect relationship with his father in the garden. Perfect. But he also wanted more. The, the tempter, the same tempter that is tempting Jesus here, the same tempter who said I w- he would wait till a more opportune time, that same tempter said, you can have more, and all you have to do is do that thing which was forbidden and take fruit from that tree. And he did it, and everything got worse, and he was separated from his father in a way that we, f- we know what that feels like. We live with the results of that separation, and we're, you know, it, we're in it. We're in, the Bible says that we're in Adam. So now, think about Jesus. This is the part that's hard for us because we, how, we have to use our imagination, but he has never known a time in his earthly life or the time that preceded that when he was the eternal Son of God without beginning, I mean, it's just, this, that gets us thinking about it. That, that, but there was never a time where Jesus didn't know the love of God intimately. And so he calls him, right here in this passage, he calls him Abba, which is the uh, Aramaic word for father. It's, very, it's a very endearing word, something like Papa. Intimate, in the home kind of word. And Jesus is the first one ever to use that word towards God. But Jesus knew God in that way, that Abba way. And he had never knew what it felt like inside to be separated from the love of Abba. And now there's a temptation put in front of him. And he really can't win without something unexpected happening, which is what Easter is all about. But let me not jump the gun. He can't win because if he goes his own way and says, not, uh, if he says, my will be done and not yours, Father, that creates separation, a separation that he had never known before. But if he does the Father's will, and he goes towards this tree and eats the fruit in, of, of uh, the wrath, it's called the cup here, where he drinks the cup of wrath, it, it's going to cause separation from God because what he's doing is taking our sins and the sins of the first Adam and everyone in between upon himself, and that creates this separation from God. So either way, he's going to lose. And you see, I mean, I'm just trying to give you reasons why he's bleeding, sweat, blood, sweat, tear, all that stuff. There's an intense sense here in which there's no good way out. But there is a better way, and he recognizes it, that it's better for me to obey my Father, to cast my lot with my Heavenly Father. He's never let me down. And even though I'm going to take all of this on myself, it's, it's better than being separated the other way. And why is he doing that? 
<laughs> this is the part where the hunger should go up in us. He's doing it because he wants us to experience Abba so that we could be ones that would call him Abba, that he wouldn't be the only one ever to call God Abba. And he's trading his Abba relationship for what we deserve, which is death and wrath. So, and, but he's going to take that, and we get to have the Abba relationship. He tastes death so that we can taste life. Let's pray. Lord, uh, in this garden, we find you on your knees crying, overwhelmed, emotionally undone, out of love, ultimately for us. And that's really why you died. It was out of love for us. So may that knowledge permeate our hearts now as we come to these tables and get to taste not death, but life. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.